0: As we turn our attention back to the service, the reading from today comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2 through 5. Paul says this, we always thank God for all of you, making mention of you constantly in our prayers. We recall in the presence of our God and Father, your work produced by faith, your labor motivated by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that He has chosen you. Because our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full assurance. You know how we lived among you for your benefit. Will you pray with me? Our Lord and our God, we beseech you as your creation to look mercifully and favorably upon us. We have wayward hearts that would descend into um, self righteousness and self worship, but Lord, will you keep us from that? Help us to acknowledge Christ and the Holy Spirit, and may we powerfully live out the example of his love in this world. Help us to be ambassadors on your behalf. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Pat, good to
1: see y'all. Well, we are just uh, so delighted to have uh, Richard and Janie here. Praise God for the ministry that they are doing and for answering that call. You can also this week, if you will, think about it, pray for our youth. Tomorrow uh, morning, they are headed off to a retreat in Montana. Pray for their safety and pray that they will all, all those little heathens will get saved. Will you pray for that? <laughs> Especially mine. No kidding. Just, we just pray the Lord would just uh, fill their time and bless them. That passage we read in 1 Thessalonians is not where we're going to be this morning. We're going to be in Acts chapter 17 where we're going to look at the planting of the Thessalonian church. And the reason why I had him read that passage is because, ironically, a lot of the ideas that we get about the second coming of Christ come from 1st and uh, 2nd Thessalonians. Uh, Just to tell you a quick story, when I was a kid, I grew up in a little Southern Baptist church in Goosan, Virginia called Faith Baptist Church, and uh, one Sunday night... They decided instead of having a regular service, this is the 1970s, they were going to show a movie called A Thief in the Night. How many of you have seen A Thief in the Night? I mean the 1970s version. Yeah, if you haven't, do yourself a favor, go home, Google that, and watch it. It's just super fun. Um, But that movie was designed to scare the hell out of you. I mean, quite literally, just to scare you into the kingdom of heaven, because it was designed, it was all, the whole premise is what is called the rapture of the church, and so the idea is that, you know, Christians are sharing with their friends about how Jesus is coming, and their friends are like, nah, that's dumb. <laughs> and so this is a story about this young lady, and she wakes up one morning, she's heard her friends, they've tried to make the appeal to her to get saved, and she gets up and kind of stumbles and is like, oh, Rick, Rick, where are you? She can't find her husband, she goes into the bathroom, and there's Rick's, I don't know if that was, that was his name in the movie, it might, I might be wrong about that, but there's his electric razor just buzzing there in the sink. And she's like, oh no, what happened to Rick? Rick's been taken in the rapture because he got saved and she's been left behind. And the, that sets into a whole process, a whole story of her being chased by the tribulation force. That's the name of the police. Uh, the tribulation force who are trying to capture her and make her take the mark of the beast. So it gets all the way to the end of the movie. She's right there. She's about to die. She's about to take the mark of the beast. <gasps> and then she wakes up, and it's all been a dream. She's like, oh, thank God. And she gets up and she goes to the bathroom, and there's Rick's shaver just buzzing there in the sink. And it's like, da, da, da. <laughs> you know. It's like, it's just so scary. And as a seven-year-old kid, it scared me to death. And so, and, uh, so I was just ready. I was ready. Like, I, I don't want to miss the rapture of Jesus. I don't want to be left behind. One night, I got up. It was about 2 o'clock in the morning. And I noticed my brother wasn't, we used to share a bed, And I noticed my brother wasn't laying next to me. I was like, where's Skip? And I get up, and his pajamas are right there by the bed. And I was like where is he? So I walk over into my mom's room. I was like, mom, I think, where's Skip his pajamas? And I see my mom's pajamas right there by her bed. And I go... And all I could hear was the music from that movie. There's no time to change your mind. The sun has come, and you've been left behind. And I just sat there on the couch for two more hours with this song going through my mind, crying my eyes out. Now, this is a very cruel way to teach a child eschatology, okay? And my mom comes home. It turns out my brother, he used to get these horrible nosebleeds. He gets one. It won't shut off, so she has to run him to the ER. And they just got undressed, dressed really quickly, went down to the ER and did that. My mom puts her arm around me. She's like, honey, stop crying. She goes, are you ready to get saved and filled with the Holy Spirit right now? I'm like, yes, ma'am, I'm ready. (laughs) In a similar fashion, the Thessalonians had been told that they missed the coming of the Lord. This is why Paul has to clarify it in these two letters. Because someone, Paul says, if a letter from us has come, we've heard that it's arrived there and told you that you missed it. And he, what he wants to encourage them with is this message. You didn't miss it. You didn't miss it. And here's how you're going to know. The return of the Lord, as a believer, you will see it. It will be visible and glorious. In fact, when Jesus comes back, he's coming back, 1 Thessalonians 4, he's coming back with a shout, with the voice of the archangel. It's going to announce the arrival of God's Son. You're not going to miss it. And it's going to be so powerful and so visible and so known to all, the dead are going to come out of the graves. Like the dead are, the graves are going to pop open and the dead will come out first, and then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together and forever will be with the Lord. And so he wants to encourage them with this. Now, this is the story of him planting that church. And we're going to find out why it is that they're so interested in the advent of the king, because they have been taught that when Caesar comes, he comes with the voice of of uh, the trumpet. He comes with, uh, announced by trumpets. He comes with fanfare and in glory, and people show up to meet him outside of the city and return with them. And this, in their mind, is part of the gospel. This is part of how they understand the gospel, which is the advent, the coming of their king. And so we're going to look at this passage. Now, here's what we learn from Acts chapter 17. The first thing we learn when Paul goes to this town and plants this church that he loves so dearly. He loves so dearly. We learned that the gospel is missional. We learned that Paul's gospel is missional. The church of Jesus, the Christ, is in nature and effect, the church is an outgoing thing. The gospel is by nature a missional enterprise. It was designed, we were designed to go out into the world. So what do we mean by missional? Well, that's what we mean. We mean an outgoing message. A message that we take beyond our borders a message that we take out of our community and share it and share the love of God with others look at Acts 17 1 through 3 it says now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia now this is Paul and Silas and their team and so they passed through these towns why do they pass through these towns really not a lot of synagogues there at least not a lot of synagogues where Paul thinks the gospel can take hold And so then they came to Thessalonica. So Thessalonica was a city about the size of Idaho Falls, somewhere between fifty and 60,000 people, uh, where there was a a synagogue of the Jews. So you note, Paul is is going to lock in on this synagogue. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on all three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and then to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I'm proclaiming to you from Nazareth He's the Christ. He's the Christ. Now, what are these people hearing? First of all, we note Paul goes. Paul has just been persecuted. You know what Paul could have done? He could have gone home. (laughs) Like John Mark a few uh, chapters ago. John Mark is like, forget this. I'm out of here. And he goes home. Paul doesn't go home. Paul has had the risen Jesus appear to him on the road to Damascus. Right? On the road to Damascus. Yes. And he and Paul knows that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. Jesus Christ has personally called him and sent him into the nations, and if it costs him his life, he goes. And this is what the gospel does. The gospel goes. And the second thing he tries to do is he tries to preach the gospel where he can make a personal connection. Why does he start in the synagogues? Why does he do that? Because he knows the synagogues, and they know what kind of person he is. He knows their theology. He knows what they teach. The Christian message is the fulfillment of what they're reading every Sunday. And so he goes and makes a personal connection with them so that he can make inroads into the community through the believing Gentiles who are part of the synagogue. And then third, he makes a rational argument from the Scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. Paul presented a reasonable case from the Scripture for Jesus as Messiah And he explains how these texts are fulfilled in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And if you go back a few weeks ago, remember, we looked at some of these texts. We looked at two things, predictions and patterns. Jesus fulfills specific predictions, and he fulfills patterns that are in the Old Testament. We saw those. And so this is the kind of thing that Paul is presenting to them. But you have to understand the gospel that he's presenting has two parts. It is two parts. First of all, it's who Jesus is and then what Jesus does. Now, if you're sharing the gospel with someone and you skip who Jesus is, you've really missed the framework of the gospel. You've missed the framing of it. So Paul does not just jump straight to, well, he atoned for your sins. Well, why am I a sinner? <laughs> why does God care about that? Right. So Paul wants to frame it this way. He is God's anointed king, and that's why he calls him the Christ. This Jesus, who I've been speaking to you about, he's the Christ. He's the anointed one. He calls him the Messiah. That's what that means. In Greek, it's the word Christos, and that is Caesar's title. Caesar has essentially three or four titles. Caesar's title is uh, soter, which means savior, kurios, which means lord, and Christos, which means the anointed king of the gods. That's who Caesar is. He's the king of kings and the lord of lords. Now, if you take this message and you go into Caesar's world and tell people the king of kings and the lord of lords, the savior and lord of the world, the anointed Messiah is Jesus from podunk Nazareth. Okay, you are immediately preaching a counter-cultural message. You are preaching a counter-imperial message. You are telling them that their king, the king they embrace, the king they're waiting to arrive in Thessalonica uh, and and, uh, to celebrate with trumpets that king is a sham. How do we know they took it this way? Look at verse 7. When they rioted, when some of the people there in Thessalonica, when they rioted against Paul, they went to Jason's house who was hosting Paul and Silas, dragged them before the magistrates and said this, Jason has received these people. (laughs) And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar saying there's another king, Jesus. This is how we know this is how they heard the gospel. is because they're not wrong here. They, are not, they haven't misheard the gospel. The gospel is about this new king, God's anointed son, and God the son. And so this is who Jesus is. But we have to then understand what Jesus does. What is his work, his person and his work? Well, Jesus atones for sin. Notice what Paul says. Paul said, this Jesus who suffered, basically suffered on the cross for your sins, who gave his life for your sins, and who rose from the dead, to defeat sin, to defeat sin's consequences, which are death. You die in sin, you stay dead forever. And the resurrection from the dead, the cross and the resurrection from the dead tell us that a man who is in Christ does not stay dead forever. And Christ wants to tell them this. This is the good news. Now this is what Jesus does. He saves, this king saves. And so we see that the word of God is the power of God for the mission of God. The word of God Is the power of God for the mission of God this is the message that changes lives this is the message that transforms the heart that transforms a human being and a human community from the inside out it is the Word of God which is the power of God for the mission of God now we'll talk in a few weeks about the Greek philosophers at the Areopagus Paul goes to this uh, sort of philosophical forum And what he's doing here in the synagogues is Paul is preaching out of the scriptures. You see, when you start with people who are sympathetic to your belief system and know something about it, you can preach out of the scriptures. You can explain Jesus out of the scriptures. When he goes to the Areopagus, when he goes to Athens and he's having that debate at Mars Hill, you have to preach them into the scriptures. You have to start where they are. You have to start with what they believe and what they know, and then take them toward the text. And so he's going to use a very different method. But right now, we see that he's preaching the word. He's preaching the scriptures. He's showing them how Jesus fulfills them. Look at the result in verses 4 through 5. It says, and some of them were persuaded. Some of the Jews, they believed in their Messiah, Jesus. And they joined Paul and Silas. As did a great many of the devout Greeks. Now, a lot of the devout Greeks who are attending this synagogue, they go, Yeah, yeah, we're signing up for this. This sounds like the God, this sounds like something from God. And not a few of the leading women. So the few women who are there who are educated and wealthy also follow Christ. They follow this message. But the Jews, that is the unbelieving Jews, were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble. They formed a mob and they set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason seeking to bring them out to the crowd. So I think by now it's safe to say there's a pattern in Luke. What's the pattern? The gospel is successful. The gospel is fruitful, it's productive. But wherever the gospel is productive, the gospel is persecuted. If the gospel is going into a culture and it's going to be productive, it's all, you're also going to get some pushback. Sometimes that pushback can be very, very violent. So the good news of Jesus' kingdom is the only political philosophy. It's the only political philosophy, and you better believe it is a political philosophy. It's about a king who's claiming his world for salvation, for eternity, right? It's the only political philosophy that can unify the human race. Why is that? Because it's the only political philosophy that has as its core, or ethic, receiving forgiveness, and giving forgiveness. You show me any relationship between two people, two neighbors, two societies, two cities, or two countries, or two continents, where the people in those relationships are receiving the forgiveness of God in Christ, and then passing that forgiveness on to others, I'll show you a place where there is social justice. I'll show you the, there a place where there is Unity. This is the only political philosophy that can unify the world because it addresses the thing that breaks us all apart. The thing that breaks us all apart is not our race. It's not our ethnicity. It's not our political affiliations. The things that break us apart are the fact that we as sinners have not received forgiveness or we're not passing it on to those mutually. Right? So this is what they do. Now you'll notice the mob. I love the rabble rousers, right? We get that term here, rabble rousers. Now, you have the rabble. So who are the rabble? They're all the people that hear the commotion. And they're just like, hey, man, what's going on? And So they come down. And they're like, hey, man, what's up? What's, what's, what's going on? And the rabble rousers are the evil men. Now, the Jews know who they are. They, they're like, we know who can stir this fire up. So they go to these men and stir them up, and they're the ones that stir up the rabble. And the next thing you know, the whole crowd, the whole rabble is like, yeah, yeah, what that guy said. That's what we're protesting. You know, they don't know really what they're doing. But there are men at the core of this who are opposing the gospel. I want you to know that mobs setting cities on fire didn't originate in America. It didn't originate in Portland. Okay? As human beings, as sinful human beings, this is what we do. Well, we don't like an idea. We come down, we burn your town down, right? So this is what they're trying to do against the gospel. Number two, the gospel turns the world upside down and inside out. Well, they make another observation that isn't wrong. Look at verses 6 through 9. It says, and when they could not find them that is, Paul and Silas, this mob dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men, these men who have turned the world upside down, they've come to our town too. <laughs> you know, like they're like, they've come here too to do the same thing. You bet they have. And Jason has received them and they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar saying that there's another king, Jesus. And that the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as a security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Oh, there's corruption at its best, right? There's corruption on display. We'll we'll just take a little bribe here and then we'll let you go. Now, this Jesus, this one, will mess you up. He will mess up your world. He, He will come into your life and he will turn your life upside down. The Jesus of this book, of this gospel, he'll change you fundamentally from the inside out. He'll change a community fundamentally from the inside out. This Jesus is very disturbing. You know why he's disturbing? Because he's a king. He's the king. He's God's anointed king. He's the one that God has appointed to say, he's the king over your life. And do you know why we have a, you know why that's disturbing is because I'm the king. I mean, when Jesus comes into my life, what I want to say to Jesus is, no, I got that. Thank you. I got that. I know how to fix that. Or my thoughts in this area are right. You see, anytime when God says, hey, that fruit right there, don't eat that. That's off limits. And I say, actually, no. I'm going to eat that. <laughs> what I've done is I've become my own king. This is why we start with Jesus as king, because the problem with sin is that you and I are self-rulers. The moment that you and I bite of that fruit, the moment that you and I defied the decree of the sovereign God, we become self-kings, self-rulers, living under our own self-rule. And so this Jesus will... Turn your life inside out. He will change, fundamentally disturb your world. But there are some Jesuses in our culture that won't. And I'm just going to give you a few. I can give you 12, but I'm going to give you just a few. The first one is the good teacher Jesus. Have you heard of this Jesus? If you've had a conversation with a Muslim, you have. Because in the Quran, they teach the good teacher Jesus, right? If you've ever had a conversation with somebody who just didn't want to have a fight with you, they're like, hey, man, Jesus, you know, it's Doobie Brothers theology. He's just all right with me, right? Right, but Jesus didn't, doesn't want to just be all right with you. Jesus wants to be your Savior and your Lord. And he demands exclusive commitment as the God of your life. Jesus is not a good teacher. The rich young ruler, he comes to Jesus. Jesus settles this. The rich young ruler comes and, and he says, good teacher... What must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? Jesus stops him right there and says, why do you call me good? Don't you know what I've been claiming? (laughs) Don't you know what I've been saying about myself? Because no teacher who claims to unilaterally, singularly forgive people's sins apart from the temple and sacrifices would be good. God is the one who instituted that, and I just forgive people at will. No one would handle the word of God, would stand up and say, you have heard Moses say, but now I'm telling you. <laughs> no good teacher in Judaism would ever do that. And so the first thing that Jesus needs to do with him is say, hey, hold on, you think I'm good? Have you really listened to me? No one is good except God. That's what he's saying. And so this good teacher Jesus, C.S. Lewis, said it best. He says If Jesus was not who he claimed to be, and I'm paraphrasing him here, then please never call him a good teacher. No one could be good who claimed what Jesus claimed. And you really have three or really four options. Uh, C.S. Lewis gave you three, I'm going to give you four. Here are your your four options. His three are this. Jesus is a liar if he is not who he said he was. In other words, he's actively deceiving you. And you shouldn't believe or follow anyone who's actively deceiving you if they're not who they claim to be. Or he might be a lunatic. What's the difference between a liar and a lunatic? Well, the lunatic is self-deceived. He's David Koresh, man, he believes it. He's deceiving you, yes, but he's also deceived himself. Jesus might be a liar or a lunatic, or he's Lord. He's one of the three, he can't be all three. And if he's the savior and he's the Lord and he, what he says about himself is true, then you must receive him as such, but never just call him a good teacher. The fourth one is he could be a heretic. That is to say that he could just be a Jewish heretic. Uh, Jews were really afraid of people who would come along and and pass along something that would change their traditions, and it looks for all the world like Jesus is doing that according to their theology, right? You got to choose. So he's not a good teacher if he's not telling the truth. If he is telling the truth, then he demands your all. What about this one? Define your destiny now, Jesus. Oh, I love this one. I really don't. I see this one everywhere. My goodness, I think this is probably the most famous popular Jesus in our culture right now. I think the, the most popular Jesus in our culture right now is, man, Jesus just wants the best for you. Like, we, you know, like the message last week, if you didn't see Daniel's message last week, please go back and watch that. Uh, but listen, Jesus hasn't just come to coddle me. He hasn't just come to call me to comfort. Now, he does provide me a comforter. It's the Holy Spirit. So whatever I'm going through, I have the Holy Spirit as my advocate, as my comforter. But listen, Jesus brings a cross, not just comfort. Jesus brings a cross, and this, you know, find your destiny nows. this sort of syrupy, sappy Jesus, every Bible story is about you, and, I, and I've come here to tell you, this book is not about you, it speaks to you, it tells you about yourself, you are in the story, but it's fundamentally not your story, it's God's story. This book is about God, this book is about what he is doing in the world, and through the church, right? And it involves us. Uh, part of the story is that we messed up the world. We messed up the world through sin, and now God has to fix it. And God is reconciling the entire world, calling the whole world back to himself through his son. And so this is just define your destiny now, Jesus. And let me say to some of y'all who who are a little too cranky, I I personally get a little too cranky over this when I hear people, is every story is about me and my personal becoming the best version of myself. (laughs) Whenever I see that in scriptures, it really annoys me. But the truth of the matter is that's really what my heart craves. What my heart craves is for, for me to hear God tell me, listen, all I have for you is blessing and prosperity and hope. And it's like, great, I, I'll take the hope, I'll take whatever blessing or prosperity. If your uh, boss came to you this week and said, you can do the same job as you did last week and I'll, I'll double your pay, would you take that? Oh, don't tell me you don't care about prosperity. When does prosperity become a problem? Prosperity becomes a problem when it becomes the gospel. And it is not just a fruit or a blessing attached to the gospel. When it replaces the gospel, that's when it's a problem, Right? Okay, so we don't like this Jesus. This Jesus doesn't change anything. What about the magical miracle-a-day Jesus? The magical Jesus. I call this one my fairy god, Jesus. (laughs) Right? right? Who is my fairy god, Jesus? This is the Jesus that I need every day. When I get up, I need him to give me a a miracle-a-day. Like I need whatever, if I experience a twinge of pain today, I need that erased right now. (laughs) Jesus does not do this. He doesn't do this. What he does is he say, welcome, welcome. I've I've saved you for eternity. I've saved you for abundant life. Here's the cross, right? (laughs) Here's your cross. Now carry it. This is what Jesus does. This is the Jesus I believed in when I was four. I had a friend literally look at me and he said, man, I can't be a Christian anymore. I said, why? He said, because my house caught on fire. I said, what? He said, yeah, my house caught on fire, I can't be a Christian anymore. (laughs) I just said, what are you saying? You can't follow Jesus because something went wrong in your life? No. This Jesus doesn't exist either. The miracle of day, Jesus won't save you and he won't turn the world upside down either. What about, I'll give you a bonus, So the social justice warrior Jesus. Listen, the social justice warrior, if you think that Jesus doesn't care about social justice, you're wrong. Read Isaiah. Read Isaiah. Read Matthew 23. And you'll find out really quickly, Jesus cares an awful lot about social justice, and he has some very harsh things to say about people who embrace injustice. But Jesus does not solve injustice by embracing a Marxist victimhood culture or an ethic. He doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't come here and say, man, you're just a perpetual victim. You'll just be a victim for the rest of your life and then then placate you. No, Jesus does not do that. What Jesus comes and says, listen, you're a sinner, you're going to hell. God has provided a way for you to be reconciled to himself through the death of me, the death of his son. And that addresses fundamentally the injustices in the world. So this harmless, domesticated Jesus, who makes no demands on us, who provides comfort without a cross or a cross without a comforter, who promises prosperity and miracles and a hardship-free life where we can discover our best version of ourselves, that Jesus isn't going to change anything. But the Jesus that Paul preached, who died and suffered and rose again and has ascended to the right hand of power, he will mess you up. He will fundamentally change your life. He will change you from the inside out. The gospel is disturbing. So what's our application today? Well, we need to become thoughtful, bold ambassadors for the kingdom's salvation. We need need to become thoughtful, bold ambassadors for the kingdom's salvation. Now, what do we mean when we talk about an ambassador? What is an ambassador? In Paul's day, an ambassador was a diplomat at the highest rank who represented his country of origin the value system of that country and the message from the sovereign of that country. Okay, that's what an ambassador is. In Paul's day, an ambassador was a diplomatic official of highest rank who represented both their country of origin and the message that had been sent by the sovereign of that sending country. And Paul says, therefore, since we are ambassadors for Christ, since God is making his appeal through us, we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. This is the message of the ambassadors. This is what the diplomats say. When they go on foreign soil, which we all are, we are an outpost of the kingdom of God in hostile territory. We're an embassy. And we are here to represent our sovereign. And this is the message. You're all estranged from God. You were born into this world, sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, and Eve. And you're estranged from God. And now God has provided a way for you to be reconciled back to him. This is the message we proclaim. This is the message we represent from our sovereign king. Right? This is what he says in Ephesians 6.20. He says, for this I am an ambassador in chains. When is the last time an ambassador ever went to a foreign country and then was immediately put in chains? Immediately arrested or rioted against? Paul viewed himself as a diplomat, a faith diplomat. But the people in the receiving culture, the receptor culture, didn't always view him that way. No matter how people view you, this is what God says we are. God says that we are ambassadors for the gospel. He says, pray that I might be bold enough to speak about it as I should. So how do Christians practice faith diplomacy? Every time you talk to anybody, doesn't matter who it is, it could be somebody in the Islamic faith, It could be my friend Jesse, who was a Buddhist, and I discipled him for a year, and we went through the gospel, and, and at the end of that year, he gave his life to the Lord. We talked a lot about our faith systems. It could be your LDS neighbors. It could be members of the Jehovah's Witness who show up and knock on your door and want to share with you a watchtower tract. It could be a Hindu or an atheist at your job, an atheist engineer, whoever they are. Every time you engage someone and you talk about differences of the faith, you are engaging, you and I are engaging in faith diplomacy. You and I are engaging as ambassadors for our sending nation. How do we do that? Well, here are the principles. I want to give them to you. You can write these down. We seek to understand and to be understood. We seek to understand and to be understood. I could give you 50 scriptures on this. No kidding. Old Testament and New Testament. This is the essence of missions. This is the essence of translation. Translation. Any of you that have ever been to a foreign country and been involved in translation or where you've tried to give a message in another language, you know that you have to understand the native language. You have to understand the native customs and their culture, and you have to know yours. You have to know your story, what you have to say, and you have to know how they can hear it. This is the essence of missions. is seeking understanding, and we do. We want to understand the people that we're preaching to. We want to understand their lives and their dilemmas and their hang-ups. We want to understand where they're coming from so that we can translate the gospel and reach them with it. We also insist on respectful dialogue over contested matter, matters of faith. Eventually, you're going to talk to a friend and you're just not going to agree about the nature of God. God you're not going to agree about the nature of the truth or the nature of salvation. And when we do this, we insist on respectful dialogue over contested matters of faith. The Bible commands us to respect people who do not believe the way we do. This is what Peter says in 1 Peter 3, 15. He says, always be prepared. Always be ready to give an answer for the hope that you have in Christ. And when you do that, do it with gentleness and respectfully. Do it in fear and in trembling. Do it with respect. And next, we distinguish between acceptance and approval. We are commanded in Romans chapter 2 to tolerate one another. We are commanded in Romans chapter 2 to be tolerant and patient with people who do not believe the way we believe so that we can explain what we have to say. And we accept them where they are. Listen, I don't expect a person who doesn't believe in Jesus to act like a Christian I just don't. I don't accept a Muslim who doesn't affirm the gospel to, to uh, walk and talk like Christ. No, I accept them where they are, but that doesn't mean I approve of everything they say. That doesn't mean I approve of every opinion that walks in the door, okay? And so you and I are able and called to pull those two things apart. I accept you, but I do not approve of sin. God does not approve of a false belief, right? Right? And then we seek to build rapport and we resist isolationism. We seek to build rapport and we resist isolationistic tendencies. So for those of you who are new here, you may not know this, what I want to tell you right now, before the membership class starts, it's not, I don't think it's today, is it Jason? No. We don't have a membership class today, but here's the first principle. We are not fundamentalists. We're not. You know what a fundamentalist is? It's a person who believes the same thing that I do about the Bible, about God, about Jesus, about salvation, about the nature of man. Same thing, but then doesn't share it with anyone. Doesn't have the impulse to go outside of the walls to share it. Now, we are evangelicals. Evangelicals are different. We believe this stuff, but we want to share it with everyone who doesn't know it yet. We want to share it for the salvation of our community and the salvation of our world. So understand that we seek to build rapport with people who do not believe the way we do, just as Paul did And we resist the tendency toward isolationism. And then we advocate for the interests of our sending country. This is, of course, what an ambassador does. They advocate for their sending sovereign. You're a citizen and a foreigner in this world. You're an ambassador for Christ. As an ambassador for Christ, listen, we represent another realm. We represent the truth. We represent the values and the virtue system of that realm. And we are in constant dialogue with people because we represent the interests of our sovereign who sent us. And then we establish credibility through an accurate and informed critique of others. One of the dumbest mistakes I've ever made in sharing my faith with someone, I told you about my friend Jesse, we were walking through a whole year, I was discipling him, he was not a believer, he was a Buddhist, and we had lots of different contested issues of faith. I mean, just things he believed I thought were wrong. And things that, he believed, that I believed, he thought, well, that's just too exclusive. At the end of that year, he did give his life to Jesus, but right in the middle of that. <laughs> I said something off the cuff about Buddhism that I had read on the internet, because everything on the internet is true. I don't know if you believe, <laughs> I don't know if you knew that. Something I had read about it, he goes, hey, we don't believe that. Immediately, there was this, this, this wall, he was like, well, wait a minute, we don't believe that. You know what I did wrong? <laughs> is I represented a belief that I thought he had that he didn't have. And I failed right here at this principle. I did not accurately represent his belief system. And listen, if you want to lose credibility on day one, charge a person with a belief they do not hold. Atheists do this to us all the time, by the way. If if you've seen Richard Dawkins or Sam Harris or any of these these famous atheists or any of their interviews, you will see that they constantly parody and caricature our beliefs, and they lose credibility instantly. Because if you can't represent my belief accurately, how do I know you're representing yours accurately? And so we commit to these things. Folks, the gospel is missional. It goes out. It doesn't stay home. The word of God is the power of God for the mission of God that we have in this world, in this community and in the world. And the gospel of Jesus, the real Jesus... The Jesus of this Bible who challenges us and calls us, who changes us from the inside out, he will turn the world upside down. And we are to become thoughtful, bold ambassadors for the good news of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Would you pray with me? I'm gonna ask the worship team to come up and the ushers to get ready to pass out communion this morning. If you're here this morning and your heart just, you want to respond to the gospel. You say, yeah, I believe Jesus suffered and died for my sins. I believe that he rose again on the third day to defeat sin, death, and hell for me. And you believe that. Would you embrace it this morning? Like the Thessalonians here, the believing Jews and the devout Greeks and the prominent women, will you say, yes, I believe, I I want to join that. I embrace it. I embrace Jesus Christ as my Savior and my Lord and Him alone. Would you do it now? Take a second. Just invite Him. Invite Him into your world. Invite Him into your life. And God, we yield, we surrender to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. We thank you for it. If you're here this morning and you just feel challenged, you're like, yeah, man, I just want to take the next step. I just want to take the next step and begin to be an ambassador for Jesus Christ right where I live, in my neighborhood, where I work, with the people that I know. We just make that commitment right now. God, we commit. I commit to having a gospel conversation, to crack the door open, to begin to introduce someone to the love and the grace and the knowledge of Jesus. Would you make that commitment? God, we do. We thank you for it in Jesus' name, amen.